For Barnabas, we praise you, who kept your law of love, and leaving earthly treasures, sought riches from above. O Christ, our Lord and Savior, let gifts of grace descend, that your true consolation may through the world extend. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. Today we're going to take a look at St. Barnabas, St. Barnabas Apostle. And, uh, you know, we got a little bit of a hint in that hymn verse from Lutheran Service Book 518. Uh, we got a little bit of a hint there, Pastor, uh, with regard to the meaning of the name Barnabas. What does Barnabas mean, Pastor? Well, uh, Barnabas is a Hebrew phrase. It means son of my right hand or of the right hand. And uh, bar, of course, son, you know. Um, also, you could use the word Ben there as well if you're Ben-Hur fan, as Pastor Poppy is. Uh, but you have that um, Barnabas, son of the right hand. Barnabas, son of the right hand. Now, is there is there some kind of, uh, was in the hymn verse, some kind of uh, encouragement or comfort in that respect? Is, is there some connection there to the name of Barnabas, or am I thinking of somebody else? Uh, no, I mean, I think there is a certain amount of uh, comfort that comes from that as well. Uh, let me... Let me um, the, the name Barnabas, um, of course is a, a name given to a son. Um, son of the right hand has to do with this idea of consolation and peace. And so you could probably translate it son of consolation as well. Okay, that's but what it, I was thinking. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and before we get too far ahead of ourselves, uh, this uh, Proclaiming the One Majoring in the Minor program takes a look at some of the feast days, festival days, occasions, and commemorations in the church. June 11. June 11 is the day that the church has set aside for the commemoration of St. Barnabas, and he's called St. Barnabas Apostle. St. Barnabas Apostle. And so I want to uh, uh, get your comments on that, Pastor, in just a second. I'm Pastor Clint Poppy, along with me, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Timothy Steele II. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. The scripture readings that are appointed for St. Barnabas Day, the gospel is from Mark 6, 7 to 13. The Old Testament reading is Isaiah 42. 5 to 12. The epistle, the second reading, is from the Acts of the Apostles, Acts 11, 19 to 30, Acts 13, 1 to 3. And uh, we're going we're gonna to take things a little bit out of order today. We're going to start with that uh, second reading, that uh, epistle reading, if you will, from Acts 11 and Acts 13. But pastor, uh, how is Barnabas an apostle? Well, uh, in Acts chapter 14, verse 14, uh, this is where we get that idea because it says, um, this is, of course, when they are um, out on their missionary journey and they are in the city of Lystra and uh, they're out preaching and teaching Christ crucified and uh, <clears throat> Paul uh, 
heals a man who uh, is unable to walk from birth. And uh, as a result, the people in Lystra uh, and the others uh, are that are there say in their own language, Lyconian, that uh, Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes. Uh, in other words, the, the chief pagan god and then also his messenger, which I think... Um, is interesting here as well because you see who's doing the main preaching here. It's Paul. He's called Hermes, the messenger, uh, and Barnabas is called Zeus. Anyways, that's uh, to get back to the point then. Uh, in verse 14, it says, When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard what they were saying, they tore their garments and told them, uh, No, we're actually here in the name of Jesus, who is the real God. We're not gods ourselves." And so when it says there in verse 14 that, uh, the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, uh, are saying these things. We have a scriptural reference to them being called apostles. And I think we have to look at what the word apostle means to explain that. The word apostle means one who is sent out. And that's exactly the reality of what Paul and Barnabas were, uh, what their job was in that sense. They are pastors who are sent out specifically to bring the word of God uh, to the pagan world. They are sent out in a sense, modern day missionary would be what we would call that. Now, uh, we have different ways of talking about the word apostle in the church. And so we, we oftentimes, uh, when we are speaking of apostles, we talk of those who had firsthand knowledge and uh, witnessed the ministry, uh, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not sure uh, if Barnabas did that or not. We don't have quite enough information to probably tell for sure. But um, in this sense, I think when it uses the word apostle, it means one sent out to preach the word in different places. Okay. I, and uh, you, you answered my question before I asked it. Uh, generally, we reserve that term apostle for one who is an eyewitness of the resurrection. We know Paul's an apostle because of the Damascus Road encounter. And uh, the fact that Holy Scripture itself, and uh, thank you for pointing that passage out to us, the fact that Holy Scripture itself points to Paul, as, uh, points to Barnabas as an apostle, I think would be pretty strong uh, scriptural evidence that... Uh, even though it may not be recorded for us, that Barnabas, too, was an eyewitness. It's not a matter of faith, uh, but uh, it does show the significance of Barnabas in the life of the early church. So uh, what we want to do is we want to start with that second reading, and we want to devote the uh, bulk of our time, the first two segments, to this reading, and uh, then we'll pick up with the Gospel and the Old Testament, and I think that'll be a uh, good way to approach St. Barnabas, apostle, celebrated by the church on June 11. Vicar, take it away. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. 
So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, we've got uh, two uh, connected but separate readings here from the Acts of the Apostles. Um, you know, I have, I've really gotten a new appreciation um, well, maybe it was the first time good appreciation. I'm not really sure about that. Uh, you've, you've really opened my eyes to uh, how, how good the Acts of the Apostles is, Pastor. And, uh, and, I, and I mean that with, with 100% sincerity. And uh, we, have, we have a couple of narratives that are separated by time, that are put together for this particular observance, uh, observance of St. Barnabas. So uh, fill us in with regard to the, uh, the first sentence or verse, Acts 11, 19 and so. Uh, Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, uh, or Stephan, however you want to pronounce it. Um, can, you, can you give us a... a Reader's Digest version of what is being referenced there that sets the stage for what we're about to encounter. <laughs> the Reader's Digest version. Reader's uh, Digest version, a minute or two. So in um, uh, after the... Um, the fall of the people into uh, uh, in 586 to the Babylonians, there's the captives that return, and eventually they become uh, under the rule of um, the, the Greeks, the Seleucids, and uh, the, uh, the other people that are conquered by Alexander the Great. As a result, um, many of the people living in Jerusalem speak Greek, whereas some of them still speak uh, Aramaic or Hebrew, their old language, and there's kind of a cultural divide between these two different different groups of people uh, brought about mainly by their language issues. And this is an issue in the early Christian church. And so what the apostles notice is that uh, some of the Greek-speaking widows aren't getting the Lord's Supper brought to them on a regular basis. And so they appoint specifically Greek-speaking pastors to serve that group of people that speak Greek within their congregation. So in a sense, they found new congregations in Jerusalem. One of those pastors is Stephen, who's very smart and is also, uh, you know, intellectually sparring with the Greek-speaking Hebrews uh, that are not Christians, and he is uh, shaming them on every account by quoting Scripture and knowing Scripture and pointing to Jesus Christ. As a result, they lead to him uh, being arrested, falsely accused, and stoned to death. And what I love about the death of Stephen, if you can say it that way, is that um, Stephen makes 
the good confession, fulfills uh, all of the Old Testament scriptures with the person work of Christ. And as they are stoning him, uh, as he is dying in a sense, uh, his eyes are open to see heaven and to see Christ himself. And so uh, it reminds me of so many times when I see people dying and uh, they do get that glimpse of heaven, it seems, uh, by their confession as they are dying. Uh, thank you. Thank you for, for that. And uh, what, what does that have to do with uh, Saul? Well, uh, Saul uh, is uh, the person who's kind of uh, overseeing much of this persecution that takes place, beginning with Stephen uh, and then also following uh, Stephen. This is, in fact, how Saul is converted to Christianity, is he's off to go persecute Christians, and Jesus says, uh, just a minute there, Saul, uh, I'm actually really God, and you shouldn't do this. And he listens. He hears that sermon, and he listens, and so that's how it's connected to Saul. Okay, and that's pretty much in the immediate context here, because uh, Paul, Saul's con- conversion to Paul is in Acts 9. Here we are in Acts 11. Uh, You would have thought that the stoning of Stephen uh, would have satisfied their bloodlust, but it really had an opposite effect, didn't it? Uh, yeah, because what it does is it actually drives the Christian out and to, in a sense, bring the word beyond Jerusalem. And so that's exactly what they're doing as people are driven out of their homes, the word goes with them. And so the word spreading to other areas. Okay, so those they're scattered now, and they go as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking to the word, speaking the word to no one except Jews. That's where we want, want to leave it hang. And uh, we're going to take our first break. This is Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. We're looking at St. Barnabas Apostle. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. We're looking today at St. Barnabas, Apostle. Church has set aside June 11 for our observance and celebration of that day. We're looking at the second reading. Uh, we introduced that, talked a little bit about Barnabas, and introduced that in our uh, first segment, Acts 11, 19 to 30, and then Acts 13, 1 to 3. So uh, we've we've gotten to the point now where where these folks are scattered. Uh, they're scattered, and the word of God is exclusively being proclaimed to the Jews, but that's about to change. There were some of them, men of Cyrene, uh, Cyprus and Cyrene, or Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, Pastor, um, in 30 seconds or less, explain that in layman's terms. Who who are the Hellenists? Uh, Yeah, well, so you you can take the Roman Empire as a a whole and kind of divide it east and west. And so in the west, you have the Latin uh, influence, and that's the Roman influence specifically. But in the east, you're still dealing with uh, a lot of Greek influence that came before the Romans. Uh, And so the people still speak mainly Greek because they already are united in that because of Alexander the Great and his conquest from uh, the 300s B.C., 
And so uh, when we say Hellenists, we're talking about people who speak Greek, people who think like Greeks, meaning they, they uh, are philosophy trained and things like that, and even the average person, maybe not in depth, but they think in, in terms of categories and, and things like that that would come out of Aristotle or uh, even in terms of uh, Platonic thought. We still deal with both of those things now. But you have the Greek thinkers and you have the not Greek thinkers, and these are the Greek speakers and thinkers that we're talking about. Okay, so the shocking thing here is that these men of Cyprus and Cyprus Irene started preaching the Lord Jesus to these Greek speaking folks and not exclusively to the Jews. Uh, and uh, now, verse 21, Pastor, I want you to do your magic here with your teaching. How is verse 21? I'm going to read the verse in a second. How is verse 21 Lutheran? And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Yeah, what I'd say is it goes right with the words that were before that at the end of verse 20, where these people are now preaching the Lord Jesus. And wherever the word of God is taught in its truth and purity, preached and taught in its truth and purity, the Holy Spirit is at work calling, gathering, and enlightening people into the Christian faith. And that's exactly what's happening here. These people then, hearing God's word, are becoming Christian. Uh, and uh, the word of this spread. Uh, it was so shocking. The good news is traveling. The report came to the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. What do you think the reason was that they sent Barnabas to Antioch? Is he supposed to be the missionary pastor? Is he going there as an investigative reporter to see if it's really true, if these people really believe? Is there something else going on here? Why Barnabas and why to Antioch? Well, in a certain sense, they've already done this a little bit uh, even more locally with uh, Philip earlier in the book of Acts. And what they do is when uh, the word is getting out and people are believing, they send uh, a missionary uh, or an apostle, someone like that, not only to do all those things you said, to investigate and make sure they're actually believers and whatnot, but also then to install uh, pastors to uh be the local pastors, to be the local preachers and teachers, to lead congregations, because the uh, 12 apostles that uh, were appointed at the beginning of Acts, uh, as well as the additional ones of Paul and Barnabas, aren't able to serve all the congregations and Christians that are coming into existence. It says in verse 23 of Acts 11, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. He wasn't mad that these uh, people outside of the normal Judaism were believing. He was happy. He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Uh, he didn't offer any kind of a watered-down theology. He didn't uh, have something that was, well, on the mission field we'll do this, but back home we'll do something else. It was none of those kind of games that all too often we see played here. And then in verse uh, 24, uh, we see some amazing words that tell us a little bit about Barnabas. Vicar, in verse 24, what does the Holy Spirit teach us about Barnabas? He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He believed in Christ as his Savior. He was full of the Spirit preaching the Word and being faithful to the Word 
and he was a good man. He was well respected by all who knew him. Yeah, when I see that, you know, he was a good man, I think that uh, the actions and the words match. Not a hypocrite. Uh, that's that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Um, and I think I think that quality is in short supply in our uh, in our world today all too much, but I don't want to go down a rabbit hole or sidebar here. A great many people were added to the Lord. So, Pastor, here here's where some Lutherans, you know, once again, um, you know, they 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 choke a little bit when they're reading the book of Acts. Does this mean that if I'm a good man, I'm full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and if I preach, that automatically those things are going to make the church grow? Uh, no, it doesn't mean that's an automatic thing, but it does mean that the Holy Spirit is working and uh, having his way as he sees fit. And so we can never say there's some magic uh, potion or pill that we can do, something that we can do that will automatically make the church grow. That's nonsense because the church uh, works at the the whims of the Holy Spirit. And as Christ himself says in John 3, I believe, uh, the Spirit blows where the Spirit wishes. And that's the reality in the church also. And these, these words, correct me if I'm wrong, Pastor, but these words are descriptive, not prescriptive. Correct. Okay, I think that's very, very important for us. In verse 25, Pastor, um, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Uh, Two things. First of all, why is he called Saul and not Paul at this point in time? And secondly, um, why is Barnabas going to Tarsus? Help me out. Well, uh, several things. I would say the name business, we see the name Paul crop up more as he goes more and more to the pagans. And so it could be as simple as Saul uh, being his Hebrew name and Paul being his Greek uh, speaking name uh, okay. or Latin speaking okay. name. I can buy that. Uh, and so, you know, that's 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 a guess. Uh, what was the second part of the question? Why is uh, Barnabas find him? Wh- why is Barnabas going to look for Saul? Well, uh, Barnabas has probably met Saul and talked with Saul and learned about his conversion. And he also knows that that's close by. So when you are at the city of Antioch is about 100 miles as the crows, crows flies down the coast of the Mediterranean Sea uh, is Tarsus. And so these two places are fairly close. It'd be much quicker to go and get Saul from Tarsus than it would be to travel all the way back down to Jerusalem, which is more like 500, 600 miles. And so uh, you have this uh, proximity, handy uh, person around. Okay, so it's a, it's a very practical reason why this is happening. The, uh, the rest of Acts chapter 11 talks about the, uh, the famine that is foretold, the uh, disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. It, um, it's, it's a marvelous faith response to the gospel of Jesus Christ with regard to helping our brothers and sisters in Christ in need. And want, it's, oh, sorry. Uh, well, it's historically verifiable. We have uh, pagan records of this taking place in the year 45 AD. And so it, it's great because it sets the stage, gives us context to historical events, and it gives us an idea of when these events are taking place. Thank you. Uh, I want to fast forward to uh, chapter 13, verse 1, now the second half of this second reading. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, 
Lucius of Cyrene or Cyrene, Manaean, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Uh, Vicar did a pretty good job before. A member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Um, first of all, Pastor, uh, and I don't, I don't want to use up all of our time in this segment with this, anything significant about this list of names? Well, I'd say um, this list of names is significant because it tells you about the um, way that the Word of God is spreading. These people uh, seem to be from all sorts of different places within the Roman Empire. You have Cyrene, uh, which is uh, in North Africa. You have this uh, gentleman whose name is Niger, uh, which indicates uh, perhaps he's also from Africa. Uh, And then um, you have this guy who's also within the household of King Herod himself, which tells you that it's also spreading upwards into the political class as well, and there is that connection. Thank you. Thank you for that. That was very helpful. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What's going on here? Uh, do we have the, the Holy Spirit, once again, you know, like dropping out of the sky? Uh, do we have, you know, uh, the wall opens up? I mean, how, how does the Holy Spirit communicate to them? Uh, how, how are they doing this? And then this fasting and praying and laying on their hands, that looks an awful lot like ordination. Uh, teach me. Got about two minutes. Yeah, well, uh, how does the Holy Spirit work here? Uh, we don't have the details as if he you know, spoke to them out loud or if there was a vision. We don't, we don't know. We can know that the Holy Spirit always works in the Word, and so we see it kind of is taking place within the divine service. It says they were worshiping, and what more is worship than gathering around the Word and the sacraments? That is and a that's- beautiful, beautiful observation. Thank you. Uh, so the, the second part... Um, the laying on of hands, fasting, and praying, uh, we already know that perhaps Saul himself has been ordained as a pastor, and we can imagine that Barnabas has been as well, uh, as they've already been doing pastoral work. But I would say perhaps this is an installation into the office uh, of missionary in that, that regard, where now these guys are being sent out to preach the word specifically in these faraway locales. Okay, give us a preview now of coming attractions. What are uh, um, Saul and Barnabas going to do? Where are they going to go? Well, uh, they're going to take a number of missionary journeys where they're going to keep on reaching further and further uh, into the Roman Empire, heading further and further west. Uh, they're going to preach. Um, you know, Paul, for example, is going to preach in Athens at the Areopagus. Uh, he's going to preach in Thessalonica. That's where he's going to enter Greece. Uh, he's going to actually end up in the city of Rome itself, uh, having a uh, the ability to preach directly to the emperor. We don't know historically whether that happened or not, but that's what he asked to do. Uh, And so we see them going in that direction, bringing God's word to the main cities and locales of uh, the Roman Empire. Set apart for preaching and teaching Jesus, crucified and risen for the life, not just to the Jew, but for the entire world. Oh boy, awesome. Uh, We need to take another break. When we come back, we're going to look at our gospel reading for St. Barnabas Apostle, Mark 6, 7 to 13. Don't change that dial. 
You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. Today we're looking at St. Barnabas, Apostle. The church has set aside June 11 for the observance and celebration that day. Had a had an opportunity there on the intro to uh, listen to verse 3 of him. It's both 517 and 518, By All Your Saints in Warfare. Beginning of our program, we read the uh, verse dedicated and appointed for St. Barnabas Day. We want to take a look now in our third segment at the gospel reading, Mark 6, 7 to 13. Vicar, take it away. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. If any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Okay, we uh, in in typical John fashion, things are happen very, very, very quickly here in uh, in this particular section. And and Pastor, I got to tell you, at first, it seems very, very odd or unusual that this is the gospel reading picked for Saint Barnabas Day. Uh, there's no reference to Barnabas. There's no reference to anybody outside the 12, and we have kind of this, uh, this unusual thing with regard to shake the dust off your feet, and uh, it's become kind of a fairly common idiom, not only in the uh, church, but uh, throughout all of society. And so um, I, uh, uh, I, have, I have an idea of uh, what, what the people who put the uh, lectionary readings together have uh, have in store here. So verse 7, we'll, we'll flesh it out. Verse 7 of Mark 6, and he called the 12. Vicar, who's the he? Jesus. Jesus. Okay, so Jesus called the 12. So we got the 12 uh, apostles, uh, the 12 disciples, if you would, and uh, he began to send them out two by two. Okay, so uh, we know from uh, the Old Testament scriptures, you know, you want to have two witnesses. Uh, he sends them out two by two for comfort and encouragement. They don't uh, so they don't get discouraged or beat up along the way, safety purposes, and gave them authority over unclean spirits. Um, Pastor, teach us a little bit about. 
the authority that Jesus gives his pastors. Now, if I have authority, um, boy, maybe maybe I'd like to have authority over uh, the people in my neighborhood, and I could tell them where to park and uh, when to clean the snow off their street. If I had authority over like the government, and I could tell them uh, when to raise and lower taxes. Um, what is this authority thing? And then authority over unclean spirits. Uh, what good is that going to do me? Yeah, authority is kind of an interesting word um, because it's one that we probably misuse quite often. Um, the The word authority has to do with being in an office. Uh, and when you're in a particular office, there are tasks and privileges and authority that's given to you. So if you're the president of the United States, you have authority to shoot nuclear missiles at other countries, right? If you are a congressman, you have authority to vote um, on different bills and things like that to or send write, them. Or write legislation. Or write legislation. If you're the mayor, you have authority to uh, fix uh, you through the city council the potholes and things like that, or uh, to um, levy a tax, uh, a local one on property or something like that. So you have authority, which is the power associated with the office that you're in. And your authority then is to be used for the good of the people uh, that are given under that particular office. So mayor uh, is to operate for the good of the people of Lincoln. Uh, president is to operate for the good of the people of the United States, etc., etc. And the same thing is true with the office of pastor. Pastors operate for the good of the congregation that they serve with the authority of preaching the word, uh, administering the sacraments, forgiving sins, and withholding forgiveness for sins, uh, and doing the other things that we talk about in the small catechism in the Office of the Keys section. That's the authority that pastors have, and they have it for the good of the people under them. The power, uh, and this is where the issue often is, pastors don't have power uh, uh, in the sense that they are not there for their own good. They're not there for uh, their own benefit. They are uh, the power actually resides with their office in Jesus Christ, and then they use their authority to exercise that on Christ's behalf. Okay, very well said, Pastor, and uh, thank you. Um, I think this is exactly why this gospel reading is chosen for us because it is to teach us. Um, you know, Barnabas is an apostle. Uh, Barnabas and Saul go out on missionary journeys authorized by the church. It's important for us to know by what power, by what authority, pastors do what they do. And at the, in the same token, uh, what that power and authority consists of. We can't force anybody to believe. We can't force anybody to put money in the collection plate. We can't force anybody to act like a Christian. The power and authority that we have is the Word of God, and uh, the Word of God compels people or it hardens people's hearts. It's one or the other. And the unclean spirits that we have authority over, uh, this is the devil, the world, and our flesh that God's Word is to expose and then 
put to death. And so now we see this play out. Jesus says uh, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their hands, wear sandals, and not put on two tunics. So it seems kind of silly to me that he gives all these specific instructions about what kind of a lunch to pack and uh, you know you can't prepare for a rainy day or whatever what is Jesus teaching them in this list of stuff that he tells them to do take and bring well in one sense um, he's teaching them not to trust in their stuff and the things that they have or to think that they have some ability uh, because they have uh, you know the three thousand dollar Armani suit that people will come to their church or because they you know have the holy jeans and the polo that people will come to their church but rather uh, that's not really the thing they need to trust in and it also gives an opportunity for the people of God that hear the word and believe it to provide for the needs of their pastor as well, which is an important thing. And so it's a two-way street in that regard, um, but uh, Christ is already teaching that uh, to a certain extent. Um, Very well said, and I think uh, he's teaching them, and by extension, all of us, that we are to fear, love, and trust in him above all things. Right. Uh, These are the things we worry about. We worry about our clothes. We worry about our food. We worry about our money. And I don't know how much more clearly we can say it i will just say it again worry is sin worry is sin and uh he is teaching the disciples that he is sending out two by two it's okay you can trust in me put me to the test uh and uh now we have the instructions about whenever you enter a house whenever you enter a house stay there until you depart from there and if any place will not receive you, let's look, let, before we get, keep going, let's look at verse 10 here. I don't want to get bogged down, but what does it mean if you go to a house, stay there until you depart from there? That one respect, it seems like common sense. What's the alternative to not staying there? Uh, to be traveling around constantly and moving around constantly from place to place. And I think we have to take it into a bigger context, too, and realize that at this point, um, when we're talking about the word house, this is where churches met. And so they were, we're talking about a congregation in one sense. And so when you get to a congregation, you stay there until you go to a different congregation. It's not that you're moving from place to place or house to house or even location to location willy-nilly. Be there faithfully preaching the word and ministering the sacraments until such point that you're called, in a sense, to go to a different place. That's a, that's a point that I hadn't really considered. Where I was going with that was I go to Vicar's house and he's showing me hospitality, but you got a nicer house and you got a dish and you got uh a better air conditioning setup. So thanks, Vicar, but I'm moving over to your house, Moline, because it's better stuff. That's where I oh, was no. going. But I like the I like the uh, house and church and all of that uh, best. Uh, we've got uh, uh, we got to keep moving here so we don't run out of time. Um, if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, I think that's the key. When you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Pastor, shaking the dust off of the feet, testimony against them. Explain, please. 
Well, part of welcoming people into your home uh, at that time was to wash their feet, to remove the dust of travel, because that's just a reality of living in the Middle East at that time. You got dusty as you walked from place to place to place. And so if they haven't done that, if they haven't received you and welcomed you in that proper way, you wash the dust off your feet uh, publicly as a, a testimony against them. And I, I kind of think we ought to maybe have a right in our agenda for, for this as well, when a congregation doesn't receive the words of a pastor and drives them out wrongly. Um, There ought to be a right where we shake the dust off our feet publicly as a testimony against the congregation that they are in sin. uh, Excommunication of a congregation, perhaps, in a way, would be the way to talk about it. Why don't you uh, Why don't you submit that idea for the uh, to the commission on worship for the next agenda? (laughs) I'll I'll Uh, try that. Yeah, yeah, you try that, Um, Pastor. Getting back to your your theme with regard to the book of Acts and how Lutheran that book is, uh, I'm I'm reminded of that in the last two verses. So these two by two disciples, they went out, proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons, anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. It appears to me that they went out and preached the word of God. And uh, along with that, you know, casting out demons and anointing with oil, uh, that seems like a pretty Lutheran thing to do. Yeah. I mean, essentially, all those things are Lutheran in their their point. They're visiting the people who are dying. They're driving out uh, demons. And the way you do that, of course, is with God's word preached and taught in its truth and purity. Okay. Uh, when uh, When we come back in our final segment, we want to take a look at our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, 5 to 12. This is Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. We're looking at St. Barnabas, Apostle. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. We're looking at St. Barnabas, Apostle. June 11 is the day that the church has set aside for St. Barnabas. The introit for St. Barnabas Day, verses 1, 2, 3, and 13 of Psalm 135. The gradual selected verses from Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 2. We'll hear the collect of the day at the end of this particular segment. In uh, segments 1 and 2, we looked at great detail at the second reading, Acts 11, 19 to 30, and 13, 1 to 3. In our third segment, we looked at a uh, rich, rich little gospel reading from Mark 6, 7 to 13. And now uh, we're going to look at the Old Testament reading selected for St. Barnabas Apostle Day, Isaiah 42, 5 to 12. And I'm, I'm just struck right off the bat because Isaiah 42 comes up in our readings once or twice in the one-year series. Isaiah 42, if I remember right, 1 to 7 is generally considered the first of the four great servant songs 
in Isaiah. And so it seems a little bit unusual to pick up Isaiah 42 at verse 5. But uh, before we talk about it, let's hear it. Vicar? Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Salah sing for joy, let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Okay. Thank you, Vicar. Uh, Isaiah 42, 5 to 12, the Old Testament reading appointed for St. Barnabas Day. And uh, ver- uh, Isaiah 42, verse 1, as I said, uh, the first of the four great servant songs in Isaiah, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. And so we see that connection. But uh, we're really focusing on a uh, specific work Uh, the result of what will happen after the servant comes and does his thing. So in Isaiah 42, beginning at verse 5, we've got uh, a couple of uh, sentences. uh, It's kind of seeping all the way through, but specifically in verse 5, Pastor, it says, uh, thus says the Lord, God the Lord, who created, who stretched out, who spread out the earth, who gave breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, emphasizes that God created the world and everything in it. Why? Well, it's going to kind of bookend this uh, particular text. So we have this idea that God is the one who created every person and calls them into existence through the power of his word uh, and uh, has a love and care for all of the people that he's created. And we see this then towards the end where it talks about uh, the desert and the cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. That's the um, the desert that uh, region of Arabia to the east and uh, uh, that particular direction from Israel. And then also the cities on the coastlands, which is to the west. And we have this idea that the cities on the coastland, they're not Jewish. That's a part that they never really were able to conquer. That's where the Philistines live. And then off to the, um, uh, the, the, the desert area, that's again not Israelites, not uh, Jewish people. Those are other people of the world. And so we have all the people are included in God's promise because God has created them and loved and cared for them all. A uh, Thank you very much for that. And uh, God has created everything. He owns everything. And uh, he owns everybody. And we see that that kind of message spreading out there. In, uh, in verse 5, we've got like first article, creation. And then in uh, verse 6, it's like we have the second and third article, 
kind of uh, wrapped up there. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. Before we get into seven, because we have a direct uh, quote from Jesus on that one, um, I will give you as a covenant. Now, Isaiah is speaking to the children of Israel. He's speaking to all of his creation. Who is, I'm giving you as a covenant. Is he talking about Jesus here as like Israel reduced to one? How are we to understand that, Pastor? I would say so. I would say um, that's really what Israel's whole purpose is, is to be the people through which the Savior is coming to the world. And so Isaiah is driving that point home here uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit in these words. And uh, I think I think that you, I think that's a reference back to that servant language and that servant talk in verse 1. And generally, when we look at that first servant song, we're looking at Isaiah 40, 1 to 7. And uh, we're kind of we're taking a piece early and the cutting off a piece a little bit, all that kind of stuff. But I'm, I'm uh, absolutely sure that that covenant, that fulfillment of the covenant is Jesus. Now, in verse 7, it talks about what this servant is going to do to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, uh, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Boy, that sounds an awful lot like Luke 4 to me when Jesus unrolls the scroll reads these words from Isaiah and he says today these words have been fulfilled in your hearing uh, and then everybody went berserk uh, are we supposed to make that connection pastor well I think since Jesus makes that connection yes we're definitely supposed to make that connection as well and uh, the significance of that well um, again you know we say this all the time on this particular show Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that happens in the Old Testament, everything that's written, everything that's said. Uh, it's all building towards a culmination in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And so uh, we shouldn't be surprised at that at all. In verse 8, Vicar, uh, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. It almost sounds like uh, like God through Isaiah here is uh, kind of stomping his feet and saying, well, I'm the Lord. Uh, I'm not going to give my glory to anybody else. You know my name. Uh, how is that a bad way to read that particular verse? And how should it be read? It's a bad way to read the verse because it makes God out to be a petulant temper tantrum throwing deity when in fact he is not the proper way to read this verse is i would say in conjunction with the first commandment you shall have no other gods before me god is the one who created all things who provides all things and here through isaiah he promises the savior and so his glory is in his creation and in the saving of his people and to give that praise to carved idols is to give in to the selfishness and idolatry of our hearts and that no not only robs god of his glory but also frankly it hurts us because it sends us to hell and god doesn't want to be separate from 
his creation. He wants us to live with him forever. Well said. Well said. Verses 9 and 10, Pastor, uh, Isaiah is talking about something new. Uh, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they happen, before they spring forth, I'm going to tell you right now. Sing to the Lord a new song. And then he talks about the uh, moving to you know, basically the four corners of the earth. What, what is this new thing that Isaiah is preaching about? Well, I'd say the new thing that Isaiah is preaching about is that God is not just going to operate um, in a, in the way he has in the Old Testament in the sense that he speaks through prophets, he speaks through visions, he speaks uh, to his people through thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening. Uh, he's going to actually take on human flesh and be a human being in the person work of Jesus, and that's the new thing. And in a sense, it's really not that new because it's what he's promised all along. And if we've read his word and understood it properly, it, it, it's not that new and exciting, but it is going to be new in the sense that uh, we have never seen it happen before. And I think that's extremely important for us to remember and to focus on. Uh, we're not talking about uh, scrapping the old and uh, bringing in everything new, whether it be furniture or uh, certain things in the church or more specifically uh, music or liturgy or anything like that. That's a very, very foolish way to look at these verses. The new thing is the incarnation. The new thing is God keeping his promise in the person and work of this servant who is Jesus Christ, who will live, die, rise, ascend, be really present in word and sacrament, and on the last day come to judge the living and the dead. Uh, there's our hope. There's our only hope. And in him and in his name, there is glory because there is forgiveness. Uh, Vicar, would you uh, do us the honor and bring St. Barnabas Apostle to a close by praying the collect of the day? Let us pray. Almighty God, your faithful servant Barnabas sought not his own renown, but gave generously of his life and substance for the encouragement of the apostles and their ministry. Grant that we may follow his example in lives given to charity and the proclamation of the gospel. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 For Pastor Moline and Vicar Steele, I am Pastor Clint K. Poppy. Thanks for tuning in today to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors, St. Barnabas Apostle, June 11 on our church calendar. We'll be back again soon. God's richest blessings in Christ. <laughs>